Welcome, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to Acatalepsis, the only podcast where the two gay nerds running it cannot successfully call each other to save their lives. <laughs> okay, now that's bullshit. There are definitely other podcasts like that. <laughs> I I don't know. I, I'm pretty sure this is our this is our specialty. Like, no one else has come out with this information, so I, I claim the the moral the moral high ground. I'm also sure that one's not true. Anyways, I'm your host Thomas. And I'm Sarah. And we're going to be discussing catalepsis today, specifically chapters 2.1 and 2.2. Getting on to the next arc. Exciting stuff. Yeah, we actually started uh, getting into, um, well, not quite into the plot yet, but getting some balls rolling. I'd say we have our, we have our premise now, because we've, we've successfully, mm-hmm. um, Heather has realized that Maisie is alive. And while she hasn't quite voiced it yet, her immediate reaction was maybe there's a way to save her, which like Heather isn't quite ready to acknowledge yet, but the audience can definitely realize is going to be the thrust of it. Yeah. I'd also say though, that there's, I think what's really being set up in these couple chapters is, um, set is the setting, to be honest, we're getting the interpersonal threads and we're getting what magic is described to us. For sure. I actually thought it was kind of ironic reading these chapters where half of my notes ended up being like, man, it's funny that we had our whole discussion on the um, how magic is treated as science in terms of disciplinary study last episode, <laughs> because that's okay. just all of this. Let's get to the chapter summaries first, but I, I will talk about the forging thing later. <laughs> yes, I, I basically all of my notes were poke Thomas. <laughs> uh, okay, why don't you start us off? All right. So chapter 2.1 starts with a bit of a time jump after uh, the events of the last arc. Two weeks later, Evelyn comes to meet Heather. Heather frets over the mess of her apartment and appearance. Evelyn frets over the inability of herself to socialize properly. And we get a bit of background that apparently Rain has really inserted herself into Heather's life over the last couple of weeks, coming over constantly, feeding her, hugging her, um, and that Heather's crush has not gone smaller. Um, Evelyn, however, properly invites Heather to study terrible magics with her and briefly discusses the fractal with Heather. But she mainly focuses on the interpersonal, namely Rain. <laughs> Evelyn talks about Rain using Heather uh, as using Heather up, as having a white knight complex, as being promiscuous and just looking to get into Heather's pants. A lot of negative shit about Rain, to be honest. But it's unclear how much of it is sincere and how much of it is mm-hmm. Evelyn being jealous of Rain or envious of Heather, which is a or jealous of Heather. Nuances all around here. Um, it, it is interesting that she she coaches all of this negativity on the grounds of protecting Heather, who she has only really known for like the the span of less than two weeks. Whereas we know at least um, I'm not sure if we know by this point in the story, but it is at least heavily implied that Evie and Rain have known each other for years by this point. Oh yeah, and apparently uh, Rain has told Heather that she's supposed to be with Evelyn basically all the time when Evelyn is out and about as her bodyguard. So it's also notable that Evelyn is ducking Rain to be here with Heather. Um, so take us away with chapter 2.2. Yeah, so Heather and Evie start out on their trip to the library after that discussion. Evie asks Heather to notice things that stick out around Sheriford. Heather notices the people, the pneumosomatic life, and the pigeons, which seem to be watching her. Evie, without missing a beat, notes that the pigeons could be observers from a hostile mage. 
Heather wonders what the line is between healthy paranoia and insanity. In the library, Heather encounters a servitor, which Evie assures her is either inactive or incapable of harming her. It is neither, and Heather only narrowly avoids getting stabbed with some fra frantic Latin from Evie. This sets the stage for their discussion of magic. Heather asks what magic is and why knowledge about it is so hidden. Evie responds by saying that right now magic is closer to an art, in the sense that experienced practitioners know what they're doing, but not, but not always necessarily why, and that prolonged study tends to result in death, so knowledge is not passed on. Also, like, you know, art. Yeah. Heather notes that Evie seems to be drawing on personal experience for a lot of this. In the end, Heather constructs an elaborate metaphor to explain her experience, and it does, while making everything involved that much worse. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. Let me pull up my notes. Um, so I guess the first place to start with all this is, before we really get into the magic stuff, we spend a whole chapter basically just on the interpersonal. Like, there's a little discussion about the fractal, and Evelyn talks a little bit about, uh, uh, like, par like justified paranoia about the magical, but to be honest, this is mostly a queer lit chapter. <laughs> and I think that's very interesting, especially given where the, like, the plot hook for the last arc left off. Catalepsis is very much here to hook you with the Eldritch, but you're here to stay for the interpersonal stuff just the interpersonal stuff it's it it weaves in the interpersonal stuff as a key part of how the eldritch works which is i think is what makes it very unique that's a good point actually yeah because you know we could bring this back to uh heather's fears of the cults uh previously um i think almost in actually i think in every lovecraft story i've ever read and most similar eldritch horror stories when they talk about cults people get into cults with stuff twisting their minds right like it happens because you go to study something and then it warps your mind from the inside out or you're an ordinary family and you get twisted into a cult right mm -hmm. um hell even stephen king's got like a classic story about um uh this alien uh ufo twisting the minds of people in the town which kind of turns them into a cult right even that and it's a really famous example of uh, stories like this. Even that's got very little elements of a real cult, right? It, it's just magic. I, you know, I'd love to see an eldritch horror story that was based off the premise of like the quote-unquote cult involved was an MLM. <laughs> I, you laugh, but I'm being completely serious. Okay, well, go on, go on for a moment. But let me come back to my point in a second. Yes, yes, but like I basically just that like an MLM is really the like. People have, unfortunately, frighteningly few um, warning signs when it comes to actual cult behavior. But even among those signs, an MLM evades most of them because it plugs into like a different part in your brain, which mm. is that like cults. And and again, I say this as someone without any personal experience here. So like anybody who um, has, unfortunately, more personal experience than me, feel free to chime in in the Discord server or message us, just let us know if we're off base here. But cults plug into, on the surface, an area of belief. That is their purpose. They are there to give life meaning and to give purpose behind people's actions, to give you a framework through which you can observe the world and make sense of it. That, it might not be a good framework, but that is their stated intent. MLMs are on their 
on their surface aren't meant to do any of that. They're just meant as a monetary transaction to give you a better quality of life if you had to summarize it down to an essential sort of piece. But on the interpersonal level, they function a lot closer to cults in terms of what they have the members do. Individually shaming people if they can't like adhere to the lifestyle correctly. Cutting people Mm. off from external sources who might disapprove or show other information that contradicts the beliefs or lifestyle teachings of the of the main structure. Like basically like providing layers and layers of insulation between the members and the outside world. Right. And and so that you can just get deeper and deeper. Yeah. And mind if I hop in here for a moment. Um, Yeah. With cults, there's also an element of disorganized detachment, right? That uh, mm-hmm. when you experience stress and discomfort, mm-hmm. uh, the source of the pain and the the source of the pain and the problem and where you go for relief from that pain are the same source, right? Which is part of the problem. You get twisted into this deeply dysfunctional relationship. It's the same thing with MLMs and financial stress, right? Yeah, especially since they the, the promise that they offer is twofold. One, success is guaranteed and you're going to have a better life. But then on the other hand, if you fail, it is your fault. Right. Well, and also um, the MLM structure creates a ton of financial stress. So you go to the MLM trying to pull yourself out of a hole and then the MLM puts you deeper in the hole and then you try to keep on getting out. Also, I just realized not everybody listening to this necessarily knows what MLM means. Um, for those who don't know, MLM means multi-level marketing scheme. It's a form of um, uh, not quite pyramid scheme, but it's where um, you get people to sell products to other people. But rather than acting as a typical employee where your supplies are given to you and whatnot, you pay the company for your supplies that you're going to sell on to other uh, customers. and very often you end up spending more money doing that than you get in. And the best way to actually make money is to pull more people into the MLM uh, because you get bonuses. It's a pyramid scheme in a trench coat and a fedora. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, um, haven't gone on that little tangent. Just what I wanted to say is uh, we were previously talking about how Heather was very scared about getting pulled into a cult with rain. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that is one of the more interesting things that catalepsis does with uh, the idea of cults. Right up front, it's very clear that if there's any culty stuff going on in this story, and we are told there are cults operating in Sheriford, it's going to focus more on the interpersonal with respect to how people get into it rather than direct uh, mindfuckery. Or if that mindfuckery is there, there's also going to be the interpersonal. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and while we have talked about how Heather in almost any other situation could very easily end up inside of a cult, mm-hmm. and that is still true, it does the, the story does go through um, basically pointing out, um, like Heather basically noticing, hey, I understand that there's a reason behind this behavior <clears throat> that I can point mm-hmm. to and is logically self-consistent, but it is also kind of very bad in almost any other scenario, and that's mm-hmm kind of worrying in and of itself yeah anyways we've talked a lot about cults and we barely even touched the story should we get oh move on a little go for it uh, there's part of two point one i just wanted to bring out real quick because it touched on a previous theme i mentioned uh where heather is uh defending her messy space to uh, evelyn and saying like but there's all 
there's mess. There's always mess. Even sane and sleeping, I'm, I swallowed back the rest. And it comes back to a thing where it's like, I think I said in a previous episode, short-term improvements are good, but they don't substitute for long-term systemic improvements. And I think that's in practice here. Heather's expecting this short-term change in her life to fix everything, or she wants it to. But the reality is, what the improvement does is it gives her space to start working on this stuff, where she is now on the same playing field as every other college student having difficulty managing their space. I see this a lot with um, with people and their reactions to give to being given medication during the course of therapeutic treatment or, or psychiatry, mm. that they expect the drug to fix the problem when that's not the goal at all. The mm. drug is supposed to give you the space and sort of um, agency that you need. It's, it's supposed to give you a level playing field so that mm. you have the space that you need to start trying to do the work that you were unable to do before. And you're, you're absolutely right. These things aren't meant to solve the problem. And that's, that's just not what they're for. They're just supposed to give you the, I, I just keep saying the same thing. Yeah. The, the mm-hmm. space that you need to start working on yourself. Yeah. Um, also, uh, speaking of working on yourself, um, Heather talks a lot in this chapter about how she thinks of herself as being gross. Like she says, I haven't showered yet this morning. Still in the clothes I slept in. My hair's in a rat's nest. Um, I can only imagine what you must think, right? And Heather obviously has a really high premium on her personal appearance, right? And not in the uh, fashionista kind of way, but in the I am terrified about how other people see me kind of way, right? Mm-hmm. Just had a thought. I wonder how much that has to do with the fact that she's been labeled as insane and institutionalized for a lot of her life. That's a very good point. And it also fits with the fact that you 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 nailed it exactly in terms of wording. She doesn't have a high premium on her appearance. She has a high premium on her perceived appearance. She doesn't oh, comment shoot. on these things in terms of how she looks, but how she looks to other people. Shit, I I brought the point up, but I'd missed that. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a very subtle use of language in that, yeah. like any time that she brings up her appearance, at least. And most mm-hmm. of the times that I remember, it's either in reference to explaining some perceived defect of herself to someone else or putting in the caveat for herself as to why this person probably doesn't want to associate with her. No, actually, now that I think about it, uh, she talks about herself very differently in here than she did in the first chapter of the first arc. Um, because in the first arc, she talked about scouring herself, about feeling unclean, right? Mm-hmm. And I think there is an element to that. When she was at her worst, when she fucks around with like the mental math the eye gave her, she feels fucked up. She feels unclean. She There are legitimate reasons she doesn't like her physical appearance, right? Mm-hmm. But here, everything she talks about, it's not in that. You're right. It's all totally about Evelyn's perception of her. Yep. <sighs> okay. Um, Depression will do that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so then, did you have anything else you want to say about 2.1 so far, or should I just keep on? Um, no, I mean, I mostly left 2.1 to you, so feel free yeah, fair to enough. through. All right, um, well, there's obviously the part, uh, I just feel obliged to mention this, where, um, she's massaging the untouchable bruise in her chest, um, quote-unquote, wounded internally in some obscure manner I couldn't pinpoint, uh, from her trip outside. 
Mm-hmm. First of all, goddamn, it's been two weeks and she's still like this, right? I, I'm almost wondering if it's even a, um, a physical bruise so much as a metaphysical one. Well, it's honestly, there's a huge complicated question about is it, if it's um, physical bruise, a psychosomatic bruise, or there is literally some kind of like pneumosomatic organ she has, which mm-hmm. facilitates slipping and that's bruised. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know where to go that much, but it's uh, something to keep in mind for future episodes. <laughs> there's a there's a definite note in um in two point two where I'll be mm-hmm. addressing that that it gets that that metaphor gets a lot more explicit, which is interesting. Yeah, yeah. but yeah, keep going. Um, oh right, next note. So this was a point in the chapter actually, which um made me realize something about myself. <laughs> Oddly enough, uh, go on. Oh, shush you. Uh, so rain plies heather with food um good food guilty food fried mm-hmm. chicken supermarket sushi fresh fruit scrambled <clears throat> eggs right mm-hmm. and i had this moment when i was reading it of like oh yeah i totally relate to that acts of service all the way right mm-hmm. um and acts of service are not uncommon as like a love language or a way of caring for people right um but i was thinking about why rain might do it and my first thought was Oh yeah, of course Rain likes acts of service when it comes to expressing affection for people or um, making up for stuff she's done, right? Mm-hmm. When you're a sociopath, it's super easy to tell where you stand with acts of service. Um, they're very clear, they're very delineated. Um, you are doing exactly this, and people tend to react to them in fairly quantifiable ways. Um, Mm-hmm. If somebody's unhappy with an active service, it's pretty easy to tell. Um, and it's also pretty easy to tell based on like how they respond in terms of uh, balance. Like, have you balanced the scales, right? right. And while I was thinking all about this throughout rain, I was like, oh, fuck, of course, that's why I like it. <laughs> that's why that it's like that for me. It's super easy to quantify where you stand with acts of service. And that's nice when you're a sociopath (laughs) well so long as we're just um blatantly projecting onto these characters i'll note that um heather's relation to touches is interesting in sort of how Mm -hmm. i um at at one point in my life how i viewed it um Mm -hmm. i'm autistic and i found it very difficult for a long portion of my life and even now to a certain extent to tell when physical touch was appropriate or desired Um, I am a very tactile person. Like I hang off of people. It's just, Mm -hmm. it's just what I like to do when I'm left to my own devices. Um, but I was also caught up in this sort of, um, belief for a long time that the tactile touch that I, that I gave that I offer like just on, Mm. on reflex was often too much for people's comfort. And because I was autistic and, well, am autistic, mm-hmm. and was at the time very much incapable of reading body language, um, I had no idea if I was making people uncomfortable. So mm. what I would resort to instead is I would only touch people if people initiated first, because that would clear up that relationship between like, oh, well, clearly, right. whether this person wants the touch or not, according to their body language, is irrelevant because they're the one who started it. I, mm-hmm. Like you said, I know exactly where I stand. Right. And it's interesting because Heather's got, I can see where Heather gets a little bit of the same, both because her hallucinations meant she couldn't necessarily um, 
even offering to shake hands with somebody I think might be a risk because what if they're not real, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also an element of Heather feels or felt for a long time gross and uh, unclean and fucked up because of what the eye was doing to her in her sleep, right? Mm-hmm. I could definitely see how that could create a similar effect. Uh, craving physical affection from other people but not being willing to ask for it. Yeah, or being perceived as some sort of a um, mm-hmm. uh, a burden in that respect. Honestly, like I was kind of, I mean, I know it's, it's the chapter isn't about that, which makes sense. But with the food thing you pointed out, I was kind of, I kind of wish we could have seen what Heather thought about that at the time, whether mm. she felt like potentially guilty for, for receiving all that support, like she was some sort of a burden on Rain, or whether that factored into it at all. Yeah, well, I think we'll see more of that with Rain later. Um, oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, oh, this next part. <laughs> I I definitely uh, saw this. I was just like, yeah, I'm just going to pass this off to Sarah. Uh, yeah, the part uh-huh. where she's um, thinking about Maisie and she says, to grieve would be such a relief. And it's just very clear. Ah, yeah, she's not letting herself grieve because she's refusing to accept Maisie as gone beyond recovery. Yeah. And also because if... So let's let's play that out to its logical extent, right? Let's say mm-hmm. that Maisie is gone. What would be her immediate first question after that? After that, that first shock had passed. Well, can I bring Maisie back, right? Well, even beyond that, my first thought would have been: Was there some point in the last ten years where she wasn't, and I could have done something oh. if I had stuck my head in the sand and ignored it? And she would never know. See, I'm not the kind of person to tend to entertain those kinds of thoughts very much. But, uh, yeah, wow, that would fucking suck. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, oh. yeah, the grief would be such relief. Because not only, it, it's not just about the unknown, right? But mm-hmm. about the fact that whether if to grieve would also imply that she knows there's nothing she could have done. That the grieving is the end part of that process where you have, you have accepted the trauma and you are trying to process it. So that, that implies a certain certainty about Mm -hmm. what happened to Maisie beyond just that she was gone and I didn't process that for 10 years. Hmm. Heather's real fucked up about Maisie. (laughs) You could like put that as a byline to the whole story. Heather's yeah, real fucked bit. up about insert latest trauma here. Oh, Lord. Oh. Anyways, I think I'm going to skip a little bit of the stuff about the fractal. Come back to it later. Yeah. Um, but uh, that brings us to um, Evelyn talking about rain. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so rain has inserted herself into Heather's life, to use her words. Um, she ter- uh, learns her schedule. She finds her at campus after lectures. She sends her text messages and silly pictures. Tells her good morning and good night and to take care, and basically takes her out on dates. <laughs> um, it, it's what it sounds like is going on. And then Evelyn interrupts the narrative of this with a really crass, "She slept with you yet?" And Heather says no. Um. She says, it's not like that. I don't think it is anyways, right? And then Evelyn says, with rain, it always is. And 
first, okay, I just wanted to get your read on that. What do you think about that passage? So the interesting thing is that um, I'm also some flavor of Ace is complicated, <laughs> but the, the way that that's relevant here is that when I was first reading this mm-hmm. and, and Evie asks if she's slept with you yet, my ass was like, well, of course, they probably cuddled because Heather has nightmares. <laughs> God damn it, Sarah. <laughs> Look, I mean, are you telling me that didn't happen over this two week period? Not even once. I, that's not the point, Sarah. <laughs> anyways, anyways, that was I'm my pre- initial takeaway. Anyways, I'm very, pretty, very different starting points. Anyways, I'm pretty um, sure it I, hadn't, because if it had, Heather would have combusted. We would be hearing about it in her narrative. <laughs> you know, that's a good point. I will give you that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it is, it's interesting because, like, I don't know about you, but mm-hmm. with all the benefit of having read Rain through, like, what is it, 18 arcs now? Yeah. Um, somewhere around there. I don't view her as, as promiscuous, really, especially, mm-hmm. especially not without pause or without warning, right? Like, mm-hmm. Rain likes sex a lot, but that is something that is communicated very far in advance and with a lot of warning. Can we come back that to a bit when we get to a section about uh, Evelyn, actually? Because I think yes. this is something coming from inside Evelyn. Um. The only comment I wanted to have on this patch that I think I could add to what you said is that um, I think it's interesting that this is back where Catalepsis pulls back to queer literature again, because this is honestly a fairly standard opener for a lot of queer lit romances. You meet somebody at college, they basically insert your, uh, themselves into your light, and it's a queer meet cute. And stories like this can tend to go one of two ways with it, where, ah, it's true love, right? Or it could be, oh, is this person actually into me or are they just trying to get into my pants? Right. Or Mm -hmm. do I mean that much to them in turn? Right. Um, And honestly in queer lit 50, 50 odds, whether the answer is, yeah, they are just trying to get into your pants and it's going to be a painful first relationship. Now you need to move on to someone else or whether that's where the story wants you to think it's going, but then it comes back to, Oh no, they actually loved you in the first place. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, and I just think it's really interesting that, again, Catalepsis hooked us with wide-ranging Eldritch Horror implications in the end of the first arc, but now this is where it's going to go and linger for a while before moving on. Yeah, and it's interesting that, like, I think with the, again, with the benefit of having read Rain for that long, Rain definitely loves Heather, but it is in a very different way than either of these two options would have you believe. That either one mm. is the traditional, like, through love, you know, stuttering, mm-hmm. heart beating fast, what, doki doki, whatever. Or mm-hmm. that it's just, oh, she wants to get in your pants. It's just more complicated than either of those options. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Evelyn says that Rain requires a damsel in distress for whom she can play the knight errant, and that Heather fills the bill. And I'm, honestly, I'm not 100% sure she's wrong about this. I was going to say, that part kind of strikes me as accurate. Yeah. Um, but also, I think maybe not for the reasons Evelyn thinks. I think Evelyn thinks that Rain needs a white knight because she enjoys playing at that, right? And later in the story, Rain talks about this too. But I think part of it might also just be it's easy for Rain to know where she stands 
in a relationship like this. I was going to say, borrowing from that arc where that comes up, I'm pretty sure the main takeaway from that, that both Heather and the audience is supposed to get is that Rain likes to feel of use, that she's needed, which is a sentiment that a lot of people don't like to admit, but is also just very common. Like that is what people get out of relationships, the sense that you are where you're supposed to be, that you're Mm -hmm. filling a role that is important, that is needed, and that in a lot of cases can only be performed by you. I mean, if we were talking about cults earlier about like giving you some sort of a framework around which you can organize the world, Mm -hmm. that's what relationships do in that sense. I actually wasn't going to go with cult to cults with that one. I was actually going to go to um, uh, stereotypical uh, 1960s image of a male breadwinner in a house. Yeah, I mean, both are accurate. (laughs) They're both feeling that... um, that sort of Maslow's hierarchy of need of self-actualization of this, this idea that like, this is what you're meant to be doing. This mm-hmm. is important. You're important. This is why you're important. This is a measurable sign that you can point to that you're being alive every day is contributing that, that yeah. there is a purpose. And that's not a bad thing to be clear. I know we're making mm-hmm. like really negative examples like cults in 1950s America, but like, <laughs> That's, that's not us saying that this is where this stuff comes from. This is us saying there is a reason why both of those have such lasting influences even to today, because there is this fundamental underlying need that they are addressing, albeit in a very toxic way. And that like yeah. relationships address that need in a way that does not have to be either of those things, though it can be. Yeah, and actually speaking of which, I think that's a really great note to touch on um a part where Evelyn refers to herself as a kissless virgin, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and she says, like, yeah, yes, Heather, I too am a kissless virgin. What do you expect? Look at me, right? Um, and I think this touches on something super interesting. Uh, you're familiar with the term incel, right? Yes. Our audience is probably familiar with the term incel. For those who don't know, it means involuntary celibate. It's a term referred to by a community of people who are obsessed with the fact that they will not they don't think they will ever have a relationship right uh and i was about to say mostly young white men but that's not actually entirely accurate um sarah how much are you familiar with um the uh disabled side of the incel community not extensively i'll admit yeah, so here's the actually very fascinating thing. Um, the majority of the incel community is actually pretty quiet, and at least so far as uh, I did some reading on it at some point uh, um, by um, a sociologist who was doing some investigations into their community. Um, as best I can tell from what I've learned, most of the incel community is pretty quiet, and most of them are disabled. There is a subset of the community which is made up of angry young white men who the reason they can't have relationships is because they are screaming misogynists mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and not because of any other reason. And they tend to be the most lo- like loud and vocal of the incel community outside the incel community. And they also right. tend to be pretty violent, which is why they get such a reputation. But most of the incel community is disabled. And sometimes that means physically disfigured or um, physically unable to have sex. And sometimes it means other kinds of disabilities. For instance, 
somebody with Tourette syndrome who screams profanity 24-7 when they're trying to have conversations. Yeah, or like un- uncontrollable physical tics, which make like engaging in conversation with them um, jarring or uncomfortable. Yeah, and so um, that section of the community is has some legitimate reason to believe they have a harder time getting relationships than other people. Um, has some reason to believe even that they might never be able to have a relationship. And that's not necessarily true. <laughs> um, plenty of people with disabilities and disfigurements have very loving relationships, oftentimes in similar communities and sometimes outside of it. It ain't the end of the world, right? One of my partners is physically disabled. <laughs> hey! <laughs> um, but that is to say, that's not to say that there isn't a real kernel around which the this section of the insult community creates their beliefs, right? And comes to the belief that they are unlovable. What the insult and, community... Yeah, like, the insult <laughs> incel is the term that's stuck. But mm-hmm. I imagine that's just like the... Again, the, the catchy thing, it's not about the sex, it sounds like, for this community, although obviously that's a part of it. Yeah. It's about this like this unmet relationship need. Yeah, yeah. And I think the thing is, sex gets wrapped up into that because our culture very much conflates sex and romance. Um, and particularly conflates sex with uh, classical physical attraction rather than um, mm-hmm. interpersonal relationships and... Uh, to be honest, being responsive to your partner's needs. <laughs> um, but anyways, the thing is, there's a section of the incel community which kind of just stews in a depression spiral about this. Rather than trying to lift themselves out of it, rather than trying to help one another come to terms with their current relationship situation, and not everyone necessarily can just find a partner who accepts them as they are. If you're a seriously disfigured person with major PTSD from an accident and you're living out in the sticks, there may legitimately not be anybody who's going to want to be in a relationship with you in your movable range. And if you're also disabled and you don't have much money to move, that might legitimately be the end of your relationship prospects. But the incel community does something really shitty where they just have everyone stew in a depression spiral about it about it, rather than trying to go, all right, so that part's off limits to you for now. What else are you going to do with your life? Interesting is just how much crossover this has with the queer community. We were, we were talking <laughs> mm-hmm. about this um, when we were reading Pale, other great novel, mm-hmm. um, which basically one of the characters um, is gay. And one of her struggles early on and for a long time in the novel is just that she wants a girlfriend, but there are no people in her immediate vicinity that would be interested at all, categorically, either in her or in girls. And there's not really a solution for it, at least Mm -hmm. at the time in which she's struggling with it. It's just the only thing that she has is to sit in this knowledge that she has no part. She's interested in, in having a partner. She has no partner. And we'll likely not have one for years. Yeah. And th- like that has always been historically a struggle within the queer community, which is why long distance relationships and um, relationships with age gaps are so much more common in that community because your prospects uh-huh. are functionally a lot narrower. Yeah. But more than that, especially um, during and post pandemic, 
these issues have gotten a lot more serious because people's mobility is even more restricted than it was previously. Yeah. Um, and yeah, uh, actually, again, the vocal community, the vocal component of the insular community that most people listening to this have probably interacted with at some point, straight young white men for the most part, right? Mm-hmm. But there's, especially among the disabled section of the insular community, there's a fairly large queer population because, yeah, there's an overlap. But, it, but this part of the story made me wonder, especially because Evelyn some of the language Evelyn uses, it makes it very clear that she's fairly online, right? She talks about memes and the whole kissless virgin thing, right? I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, makes me wonder if Evelyn might, like, straight up be an incel. Like, if she might occupy some of these forums. If only, like, it, not in a, I believe sex is owed to me. But in the sense that, like, there is a part of me that believes that I want it and will be unable to ever have it. Yeah. And, yeah. But the, the, other, the other thing I was going to point to is that, like, I mean, again, this is a bit, I, mean, you, I could argue you could read this in the current chapter, but the confirmation is a bit spoilers. Um, so up until, mm-hmm. like, arc 16 or 17, I think, um, yeah. or possibly earlier, but whatever. Mm-hmm. The point is that this implies Evie wants any of that. Yeah. Or at least she thinks she does, but does she really? Or is that just something that like she has been told to want? Hey, that's a big part of the insult community too. <laughs> <laughs> um But yeah, anyways, I think that's a very interesting thing to think about in terms of Evelyn. Like from Heather's perspective, we get a picture of Evelyn who's very intense and almost cruel to an extent. Um but when you start digging at like the little things Evelyn says, you get a picture of this seriously depressed woman who is self-isolating, denigrating her main friend and trying to push her away, and might even spend time on incel forums. She's not the, the picture of the mental health. She, <laughs> even the thing she goes with to point that out, like, I'm a kissless virgin, isn't a statement about like how she really, like, once a kiss and hasn't had one it's an immediate segue into look at me it is mm-hmm. evidence not that she has this unfilled need that she wants but that the fact that she hasn't had this is evidence of what people think of what she looks like yeah that's what she cares about yeah also side note for people who are in evelyn's position if you're you know queer and disabled and like feeling like there might not be anybody out there for you um Y'all, the queer community tends to be pretty fucking open-minded about those things. Um, if you're looking for any community where people aren't going to immediately like look to um, classic societal beauty standards and like ableism standards for what they're interested in, y'all, it's the queer community. You've got a better chance than you think. <laughs> yeah, and not just like... I hate to be this person because I have been in this same situation before and I've heard this a thousand times and I know that it doesn't fix everything, but having a fulfilling and happy relationship does not automatically mean that every interpersonal need of yours is filled. Mm. Like you need friends and family for that. Um, And like, I know that having those people in your life does not fix the relationship need. I get it. Trust me. I get it. But it does it does help to lean on those people to when you're when you're trying to verbalize these things. 
It helps. Yes, sorry, just bringing this back to helps. You just made me realize something about Evelyn and Rain. So both of them have only had one another for a while, right? Mm-hmm. And it sounds like Evelyn hasn't been getting enough out of her relationship with Rain. Um, yeah. What she's been getting has been That's incomplete, fair. right? Yeah. Which is part of why she's going into this depression spiral and withdrawing. But um, it sounds like Rain has kept on trying to bring people into their group, which not always in a great way. Sometimes they're Wiccans or people who like as as Evelyn perceives. Yeah, as Evelyn sees it, people playing around at the stuff she's actually risking her life working with, right? Yeah. Um, not to disparage Wicca, just um, it's the example used in uh, the last arc. Um, but uh. Rain, I think, might be doing the other thing. She's reaching out to try to find people to bring into their group to meet these interpersonal needs that Evelyn isn't meeting, but she's just not being very upfront about it, and she's trying to do it... She's trying to frame it in a way of, oh, Evelyn, look, a research opportunity, rather than, hey, Evelyn, the two of us aren't fucking enough to fulfill all of one another's interpersonal needs. We need another leg in this triad. (laughs) Yeah, and it it makes sense when we're talking about like, think about why Evie is doing what she she's been doing up until mm-hmm. this point. Like, I mean, other than like the pursuit of knowledge, which um, mm-hmm. within magic in catalepsis is dangerous at best, mm-hmm. um, perhaps openly foolhardy at worst, especially since Evie's the only practicing mage in their group up until this point, like mm-hmm. rain helps, but she isn't, she can't follow Evie sometimes literally in the places she needs to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but the closest thing I could find to a reason why Evie keeps learning and practicing magic is basically to actively protect herself from falling into the kinds of situations her family has put her in in the past, which we will get Mm. to eventually. And so like that, that helps, but it's also somewhat directionless. It's almost Mm. like trying to prove a negative, right? Like every day that you are not in um mm-hmm. in a in a situation like that is good but you wonder like was this something specific that i did or would this have happened anyways yeah there's also actually i think there's an element of this in evelyn's behavior um this is something i think uh, a lot of people often miss about stuff like addiction or bad behavioral habits when they try to pull themselves out of it uh the trick's not getting yourself to stop a bad behavioral habit or stop an addiction that's actually fairly straightforward. The problem is replacing it. Because bad habits and addictions do something for you. There is typically something in your life they are making happen for you. Whether that's distracting yourself from your problems or giving yourself relief from something or they're doing something for you. It might even just be distracting you from being lonely, right? Mm Mm-hmm. If you just try to carve it out of your life without a replacement, you're going to fall right back into it, right? And the same might be applied for Evelyn with magic, because what the fuck else is Evelyn going to do with her life? Yeah. I mean, the thing that helps you not think about pink elephants is a white elephant. (laughs) Actually, in my case, it's a yellow tree. If anybody says, don't think of a pink elephant, I think of a yellow tree instead. Only you would have like a default answer to this innocuous question. You nerd. I worked really hard making that an automatic response. And no, I'm not telling you what the response to a yellow tree is either. Moving on. (laughs) Um, 
I like to think that I would be prepared if I got dumped in a situation like this. <laughs> you also unironically have a code phrase in case someone's time travels to you. <laughs> and you'll never know what it is either. <laughs> Not unless Under you... what circumstances would you possibly give it to me? Uh, if you demonstrate some evidence of time travel. All right. I mean, then Anyways. I've got to invent. Then I've got to invent another one in case you're just bullshitting me. But I'll give it to you if you. <laughs> I'll give it to you if you have plausible evidence that you've time traveled at least once. We're way off track. <laughs> Anyways, to your next chapter. What do you got for me? Um. All right. You don't have anything more for two point one. Just check. Uh, I don't think so. To be honest. Um. I mean, there's the part. Oh, right. There's the part about how Evelyn is che- might be jealous of uh, Heather, or of uh, jealous of Rain. Um, jealous, envious, two things I think it's important to make the distinction on. Jealousy mm-hmm. means wanting to keep something away from other people. Envious means wanting what other people have. Yeah. And it's really not clear what Evelyn, which of those Evelyn's feeling here, whether she's, whether she is jealous of Rain, but she doesn't want Heather to have her, or she's envious of Rain for her relationship with Heather, this cute new girl who intuitively knows magic or whether she's jealous of heather to be honest whether she's upset with rain monopolizing her (laughs) yeah i mean it's it it could be so many things especially filtered through heather's perspective where she doesn't know enough about evie to be sure of any of this that her only um it the only thing that she knows for sure is that evie is dissatisfied with something about this situation she just doesn't know what. Honestly, 18 arcs in, I'm not sure I could label exactly what has Evie dissatisfied about this situation. I mean... It's in there, but I don't know That's a whole other, like, <laughs> 22 episodes from now. Optimistic. 35. So quick, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, talk about your chapter. Okay. So the first thing that I wanted to note um, is, this is just a bit of, like, potential foreshadowing. Since we talked about... um that metaphysical bruise on Heather's chest, right? In 2.1. And in mm-hmm. 2.2, we get this section. Um, let's see. Her limp was only apparent if you washed for it, and I was too busy keeping up and rubbing the base of my ribs. The urge to rub a bruise is almost universal. Pressure and compression feel good, but I couldn't reach the supernatural bruise inside. Walking and breathing harder made it worse, a throb at a deeper level than mere muscle and bone. So on one hand great imagery and more confirmation mm-hmm. that like even Heather isn't sure about whether this bruise is physical, psychosomatic or metaphysical or all mm-hmm. three. Um, but what I find interesting is the change in diction as to where it is at the base mm-hmm. of her ribs. And without getting into too much spoilers, um, the way that Heather's abyssal dysphoria manifests and causes her issues is at the start with a lot of heavy bruising and discomfort on her ribs. Huh. I thought base of her ribs here meant like at her sternum, but you're talking about well, it being more on the sides. That's, that's the thing. I think it is. But the usage of that diction, which like hmm. could be confused for either location, I think is deliberate. Interesting. We might have to ask Hungry about that at some point. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, that, I yeah, just yeah, wanted to on. point that out. It's interesting. Um, so the next section, um, this is where Evie and Heather are walking to the library, and Evie's asking Heather, like, what sticks mm-hmm. out about her scrapbook. Oh, uh, I did as she asked. Oh, sorry, go on. Oh, do you sure? Yeah, 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 go on. Okay. 
I did as she asked, feeling silly and skeptical as I glanced around up and down the street like we were little girls playing spies. Cars passed in ones and twos. A six-limbed beast of bristles and spines lumbered along the end of a side street. A couple of other students plodded up the opposite pavement. A pack of things, half wolf and half ape, picked their way across the suburban rooftops. Pigeons cooed. I shrugged. Nobody's suspicious around here. So what, there's a couple of things I wanted to get in this. For one, is that the, the description of the, the pneumosomatic life, which Heather is noticing, is already, already has a marked change from what we've seen before. Whereas before it was something that either surprised her with how direct it was, or that really stuck out in terms of Heather's, um, Heather's memory of like how disjointed it is. Here, it's woven in completely seamlessly with the other inhabitants of Sheriford. Like oh. there, and she even says at the end, nothing suspicious around here. Nothing mm. out of the ordinary. That's a big change. Yeah. So it's, it's both a big change and a nice way of showing that time skip because mm. Heather has had two weeks to process the fact that this stuff is real. Yeah. Um, <sighs> but beyond that, what... I wondered, like, what is Heather's bar for what suspicious is? What would it look like? Mm -hmm. Well, this is, I think, uh, often a big thing where you have, um, it's legitimately harder to tell if you're being stalked than a lot of people think it is because we just genuinely do not pay that much attention to our surroundings. <laughs> Funny story. Um... I had a friend in Brazil who was, um, I, I was living there for high school before people look at me weird, um, that she was sort of a, a member of like the upper class kind of bougie, whatever. She was mm -hmm. interesting, but anyways, I'm not trying to dunk on her. The point is that we would go out to the, with her to the mall, to some malls and stuff for movies or whatever. And she'd have a driver, which we didn't think anything of. Lots of people have drivers there. But what was interesting is that we only found out about three months in that she had two armed bodyguards shadowing us the entire time every time we were out in public. Holy shit. Wow. Way to prove a point. And if you were looking for them, you could see them. Okay. But you weren't we looking were about for like them. 30 to 40 feet back from us the entire time. Ah, uh, but you weren't looking for them at first. No, of course not. Who would, who would do that? I was like 15. Uh -huh. Oh, that's interesting. And you, you said it was, they were obvious if you were looking for them. In a sense. It wasn't like they were decked out in black camo gear or whatever. But yeah. it was more like they were distinctive enough that if you knew who you were looking for, you could very easily pick them out of a crowd and be like, oh, yeah, they're still behind us three hours later. Interesting. Kind of creepy. <laughs> the, sorry, the other thing that I wanted to point out about this is that this seemingly throwaway line, like a pack of, a pack of things half wolf and half ape pick their way across the suburban rooftops, pigeons cooed. And the thing that is actually potentially innocuous or not innocuous about this whole scene is the pigeons. Mm -hmm. The thing that is literally meant to be a throwaway line as if to say, see, everything's fine. Actually, there's another line later where she says, um, birds strutted and preened across the rooftops, their nests wedged between air conditioning units blissfully unaware of the insectoid leviathans, which only I could see clinging to the library spires. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, there's a later sentence where legit, again, birds are just interwoven with the pneumosomatic life as if it's no big deal. And it's, you're not meant to pay attention to it. Yeah. 
Um, and so the, I wanted to compare that to Evie's take. So mm-hmm. Evie points out that like when, when Heather noted, notes that like, hey, the pigeons look like they might be watching us, which it is interesting because we never actually have confirmation on this, I don't mm-hmm. think. Like whether that's just Heather being actually paranoid or whether the pigeons are like the outer edge of some as of yet undetermined malevolent force, both of which are equally likely. Mm-hmm. Um, but Heather's, Im- or sorry, Evie's immediate reaction to that is like, oh yeah, no, that could definitely be something bad. More specifically, we must be aware of the ever-present possibility of being watched. Like with the servitor following rain the morning she found you. We've no way of telling who or what sent that. Pay attention. The habit will help. So mm. this is the first time I think that we see an insight into what Evie's character is like when she feels in her element, in control of a situation, where she is, she's mm. acting proactively with what she feels is appropriate. And that reaction is immediately a point-by-point suspicion and deconstruction of her surroundings and scanning for ongoing threats. Huh. (laughs) It's almost as if this habit is what has kept her alive this long. Yeah, that's a good point. (laughs) Um, Though it's also interesting that she's supposed to have Rain, her bodyguard, around and she does discard that level of security. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she's constantly aware and paranoid, but not not so much that it uh, prevents her from being human and uh, having foibles and imperfections. Yeah, and what I also found interesting is that, um, I, and I wanted your take on this, mm-hmm. this almost reminded me of what semi-recently escaped... Um, ex-cultists react like in the real world as like Mm. just constant red flags and suspicions to seemingly innocuous events because these are things that have been twisted and used as weapons against them that like completely Mm. normal societal interactions are only perceived through the lens of is this a potential red flag not is it actually problematic but could it be could it be used to force me into a situation that I cannot easily escape from. I'm going to be honest. I've had uh, a lot of similar thoughts like that over the last few months. Cause um, uh, long story short, um, I recently uh, escaped is the right term, a PhD program with a master's instead uh, and went to go get work. And it has been a massive improvement in my quality of life. I was being badly abused in my PhD program. Um, but now I'm very slowly moving out of it, but all positive work interactions and requests, um, especially anything that smacks of being asked to like go above and beyond, all get analyzed through the lens of, am I being asked to uh, ruin my health for my work? And also, like, am I being asked or told? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, well, specifically, um, will I be punished if I don't, uh, if I treat this as a request rather than an order? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a thing. <laughs> now imagine how much more difficult that process would be if your entire workplace experience, and I'm using heavy quotes, quote marks there, mm-hmm. um, was basically the same as what you had escaped from, only this time it was impersonal. Yeah. 
Remember, this is a world of Hannibal Lecter, not Harry Potter. <laughs> uh, um, and Heather's own response to this whole situation mm -hmm. I found particularly interesting. Oh, you uh, don't voice, get it. Your voice got a little quieter for a moment. Oh, sorry. Is that better? Yeah, yeah. Okay. You don't get it. You can't. I'm trying to unlearn a decade of behavior based on, inc on the incorrect assumption that I had schizophrenia. The last thing I need right now is suspect I'm being watched by birds. And just mm. like the, it's really good writing. Um, mm -hmm. Like there's so much to unpack here, but more specifically, the fact that Heather is caught between the habits she's needed to protect herself mm -hmm. and the ones that have protected her until this point. And they are yeah. diametrically opposed from one another. Yeah. Well, also something I think is interesting, which is fundamentally delusions are based around having incorrect beliefs about your environment, right? When it comes to the outside and the pneumosomatic, how possible is it really to have an accurate perception of your environment? Yeah. I... <laughs> even, even Heather, who arguably has like the clearest sight, and I do mean that semi-literally, um, of anyone in their group, we're in her perspective, and we still don't know. Yep. Imagine how much harder this would all be if half the stuff you talk about and interact with is invisible even to you. Yeah. Like, we get to this later, but um, when Heather is being almost attacked by the servitor in the library and um, Evie is, like, trying to get it to stop attacking her, Think of what this looks like to her. Heather is having a panic attack, staring at an invisible monster, and Evie needs to yell Latin at it until it goes away. Mm -hmm. At which point Heather might stop freaking out, or she might not, because it's still there, presumably, but you can't see it. Yep. <laughs> yeah, um... Makes you understand a little more why uh, so many mages are apparently insane. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. yeah. Actually, actually, let's go on to the servitor, but real quick, before we pass that, um, there's a part where it says, uh, we descended together into the basement levels, concrete shelters for the rolling stack stuff with decades of obscure PhD theses. Reading this made me realize I've been in higher education for, God, nine years or so, right? Um, mm -hmm. Maybe eight. God, I don't even remember anymore. Um, a fucking yeah eight or nine years right um uh i don't know if i've ever actually seen where phd theses are stored or if they are stored um i've actually honestly never seen any degree of care or respect given for them to be honest it's kind of disheartening <laughs> just thought it was Maybe they're common. all stored in like a, a semi-subliminal space like the back rooms <laughs> No, but seriously, I'm genuinely not sure if, um, like, if the university I was getting my PhD program at, I'm not sure if they store PhD theses, period, or if you're just expected to store your own copy. <laughs> I generally I don't know. I just kind of assumed by this point that most of them were digital. I mean, yeah, you can find them digitally almost always um, nowadays, but it, it was just a thought. Uh, my, It's interesting, because my first thought upon reading that was, isn't it interesting how I believe the first time that Heather mm -hmm. voluntarily slips of her own initiative is to go to the catacombs. To go to the catacomb? Wait. The library. Oh, oh, you mean away from, uh, oh, back to the library, away from her thing? 
No, no, I mean to the to the library outside with the we librarians. Are not, we are not even close there. We, we're not. We're not. That is a way spoiler territory. We are not even remotely close to that point yet. <laughs> and I'm almost certain that's well, not no, true. No, I'm just saying that. I'm pretty sure that's the first place that Heather goes. If if that's the case, we'll talk about it when we get there. That that's that's territory. <laughs> we that's territory we talked about. We weren't going to do spoiler stuff for. Moving on. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Um, um Servitor. Okay, then in that case, moving on. Um. To, so so Heather sees this servitor, which is like this spider scorpion nightmare from hell. And mm-hmm. Evie's like, oh no, it's totally fine. It won't attack you. Heather is staring at this thing, which very much looks like it's about to stab her and says, um, Evelyn, call it off, I whispered. I shouldn't need to. It's not going to attack you. Call mm. it off. The terror on my face finally got through to her. So... Correct me if I'm wrong here, but this might be the first case of Heather reacting to a pneumosomatic creature appropriately, by which I mean the amount of terror that she's feeling in this moment is actually probably correlated to how likely it is to physically harm her. Yeah. I also think it's really interesting just to note how Evelyn doesn't respect Heather's terror. Um, mm-hmm. It takes a lot of re- repetition to actually get Evelyn to take it seriously. And when Heather tells Evelyn, like, hey, it's not working at first. Evelyn doesn't take that seriously either. Um, it's... it's it's a good point. But again, considering this from Evelyn's perspective, it kind of makes sense. I, I'm not justifying mm-hmm. this, to be clear. But when you've dealt with these servitors for, like, probably what's mm-hmm. at least three years, if not longer at this point, mm-hmm. and... They have never attacked anyone. They followed your orders. And also, like, not just that, but you have never seen things with your own eyes. It is very easy to somewhat downplay just how terrifyingly dangerous they are if you are talking to thin air that has never hurt anyone. Yeah, well, there's actually a part I wanted to bring up about this, which is the previous chapter, the thing we skipped over with the fractal. Um, Mm -hmm. Evelyn asks if there's any lingering effects and Heather says well there's a pressure in my head after I wake up like a distant ringing in my ears goes away after an hour or two (laughs) and Mm -hmm. she asks is that supposed to happen and Evelyn says oh I have no idea we're miles beyond precedent here right which is interesting I think it's actually something uh, this touches on like the fundamental elements of science I think where the biggest one is you have to have a null hypothesis, right? Um, Mm -hmm. You absolutely cannot make any progress unless you have an answer in your framework where you go, we did the experiment, we did the studies, I put all my best thinking at it, and I've still got no fucking clue. That has to be an answer. And Evelyn does that here. She goes, fuck if I know what's going on, right? We're just collecting data. Um, I have no answers for you, right? In science, or more specifically psychology, <laughs> we'd call this an exploratory study. <laughs> also, I kind of got to wonder, speaking of medical exploratory studies, got to wonder if keeping the fractal on your arm 24-7 leads to, like, I don't know, spiritual cancer 10 years down the line or something. If it is, that is still a better option than whatever the fuck the eye is doing to her, so... Mm, you might be underestimating whatever spiritual cancer is, but... <laughs> I mean, to be fair, like... At- if it's 10 years down the line, do you really think that Heather wouldn't be capable of just, like, from scratch, putting herself back together? Depends on the spiritual cancer. 
Um, um, oh, and speaking yeah. of the fractal, there's this interesting mm -hmm. point in the chapter um, where um, Heather's asking, well, like, there's more actually, of these things being... The, oh, real quick, actually, before we get to that, you mind if I finish up what I was saying about this? Yeah, sure. It was just the part where Evelyn does that earlier. She goes, fuck if I know about the fractal, right? But she mm -hmm. refuses to do that here. The servitor is exhibiting unexpected behavior around an unexpected uh, stimulus, and Evelyn doesn't let herself go, oh, I don't know what's going on, and I should react accordingly. She insists that everything is still acting within her usual parameters, despite being straight up told it's not. And that's a definite character flaw of Evelyn that happens sometimes. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, it's a character flaw of human beings. Like, yeah. for all that science is supposed to, um, mm -hmm. is, is supposed, it has multiple different, um, like, points in methodology in which it's, which it's supposed to counteract mm -hmm. this interaction. What it's really doing is trying to counter a flaw in human nature, which is oh, that the more oh, experience you have with something, the less likely you are to take deviations from the norm seriously. Oh, we're going to get there. <laughs> Trust <Yeah>. me. <laughs> But yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, anyways, anything more you had to say about the servitor? Or did you want me to? Yes. Yeah. Um, where Evie's or um, Heather's saying there's more of these things? Of course. My family's historical paranoia has to be worth something. God alone knows what triggered it to treat you as a threat, though. The fractal? I gestured with my forearm. Maybe? So there are two things here. For one, Evie's paranoia is again showing through, but this time with an interesting twist. The same paranoia that protects her from what her family did to her is now being credited as something she inherited from them. Mm. Which I just found is a really, a really interesting note that I don't, I don't know if that's ever directly addressed, but it's definitely present. Hmm. Just the, the notion of family is both uh, a danger and the inheritance she gets from it. Disorganized attachment. Right. Uh, fair enough. That, like the thing, <laughs> the thing that defines Evie now, the thing that keeps her safe, magic, is the same thing that has given her so much trauma as to need it to protect herself in the first place. Damn, that's a good point. Yeah. Oof. <laughs> um, and the other, the other thing is this is more like just theorizing, but what did the servitor react to here? Because, like, as Evie notes, mm -hmm. it might have been the fractal, it might not have. And we still don't know why the first servitor was following her even without the fractal? Uh, you mean the servitor was, that was following Rain? or No, Heather. Outside. Oh, was it following Rain? I thought it was following Heather. No, it was following Rain, the one in the first chapter. Okay, then that makes a little bit more sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, with the servitor, it wouldn't surprise me, though, if, he if Heather actually does have a pneumosomatic organ that lets her slip, it wouldn't at all mm -hmm. surprise me if the servitor clocked on that. Yeah, that or just recognize the presence of the eye as something very bad and not to be allowed <laughs> within this sacred place or um, s safe place yeah. from its mistress. Mm -hmm. um... <laughs> Wait, does this mean... Does this mean that Heather has metaphysical B.O.? Oh, God. Anyways, moving on. <laughs> um, did you want to talk at all more about the Servitor, or...? No, I wanted to get in on a bit about, like, all of the stuff describing magic. Yeah, Just yeah. all of it. Um, though, actually, there's one last thing about the Servitor I wanted to mention before we get in there. Yes. Which is, Evelyn talks about herself as coming from a long line of mages. Her great-grandmother made the Servitor, right? 
but it's notable that she talks about having no idea how the fuck it works or how to make more of it. That's the framing we have going into this, which is knowledge is not passed on. Knowledge is not inherited, even among the freaking great-grandmother, like the at least four generational lineage of mages, of which Evelyn has literally inherited all their books. <laughs> It's an interesting deconstruction of the phrase knowledge is power, because most of the time when when that phrase is used, it's in reference to how knowledge is used. But in this case, it's how knowledge is treated. Oh, how it's withheld from generation to generation. Exactly. How, how it is concentrated into the highest upper echelon of people who are often most likely to abuse it in order to keep it. Mm. Well, on that note, what did you have to say about this magic <laughs> Okay, so there's a lot of stuff here. But the first I wanted to um I wanted to get at is Heather's own questions on the subject. Um I took it on trust. Magic is magic, but that's tautology. You did magic with esoteric symbols and circles and books, but I did the same thing by I swallowed and fought down a stab of nausea. Recalling impossible equations was still dangerous. By thinking math. I thought the books might give me some answers, some context, but I suppose it's not going to work that way. So this connects right back into our discussion from last episode, that catalepsis treats science as not in terms of practice, magic is science, Mm -hmm. not in terms of practice, but in terms of the required discipline to study it. And that Mm. because this is in the very, very early stages of their sort of functional knowledge on the Mm -hmm. subject, conflicting data makes sense because the logic governing each different case is wildly different. This would be like comparing the... um, the the circulatory system of a human and the circulatory system of a bee and saying that like your model of the heart being at the center of blood flow doesn't make sense like yeah yeah, if you're using the case of the bee Mm -hmm. and yeah it's also interesting uh you might actually if i talk about the part where she talks about foraging yes that was going to be my next point okay then you go you go on about it Uh, talk about it real quick and i'll bounce off you um, sure. So this is just, I'm going to go off for a bit, but it just, mm-hmm. I love Evie's iron smelting as an example. She doesn't directly point this out, but she lampshades it anyways. Part of the reason why magic is so jarring to the both of them, I suspect, is their level of relative knowledge oh. considering everything else. Describe the iron forging metaphor first uh, that she right, uses. Okay. So, right. So like the way Evie describes it, um, she says like, consider a, um, I don't remember the exact time frame, but like consider someone who smelts iron back in the in the bronze age or like the bronze know, like, age sarah i don't remember i'm sorry oh, okay do you want me to recite this passage for you fine go for it you <laughs> i actually did pull it out <laughs> um anyways yeah she's talking about somebody from like the iron age or the middle ages uh smelting iron and she's like you know how to make iron weapons and armor you know how to smelt metal how to get it from more where the deposits are underground right you know how hot the fire should feel at every stage, what color the metal should be, how to judge when to hammer it and quench it. But do you know the temperatures involved? Can you put numbers to that? Can you measure them with Iron Age tools? And no, of course you can't, is Heather's response. And Evelyn continues with, yeah, you don't know what iron atoms are, how they reform and bond during the smelting process. You don't know the chemical composition of metal. You just know how to get results, right? And she shows the same, like, uh, forget me uh, stone. She says, I don't know how this works. I don't know how the magic works. I suspect nobody does. And actually, it, it, Catalypsis is a story where magic is science, 
but they're effectively all still in the Middle Ages. It's this isn't a story about ma- making Magitech. This is a story about not knowing what the fuck they're doing. And actually, I was talking about this in the Catalepsis server just the other day, and I totally forgot that there was actual like not just literary evidence for the uh, perspective I was trying to pull out, but um, they straight up just say it outright <laughs> that this is how it is in two point two. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and the thing that I was going to bounce off of here is that part of the reason why magic is so jarring to the both of them is their level of relative knowledge considering everything else. Mm. Because they do know how iron atoms bond, the exact temperatures mm. needed to smelt it, the chemical process involved in the folding of carbon into the mixture. But they know less about magic than the forger does about iron at that time. In a way, it almost seems like magic uh. would be easier to understand and practice the less you know about everything else. Because at least then the disconnect isn't as large. Oh, shoot, I hadn't even thought about that one. Yeah, you're right. That, and also their their methods of acquiring new knowledge in like about the human world are woefully out of place for how to approach magic. Because like, let's yeah. take the, the iron forging example, right? Mm-hmm. Let's say a, um, let's say that one forger, one blacksmith rather, um, mm-hmm. finds a new material to smelt into iron that makes it twice as strong. He also happens to inhale poisonous fumes the entire time he does it and eventually dies 10 years later of unknown causes. All of his knowledge goes with him. Mm -hmm. So like that is the kind of danger that you need to be prepared for when you're exploring topics this new and this uncharted. That there is a very real risk of physical and metaphysical harm in obtaining new knowledge. By the way, uh, when a lot of people criticize like um, how slowly technology uh, used to advance, uh, no joke, exactly what you just described was a big part of it, because we lacked the uh, rigorous foundational knowledge to have predictive power about dangers of uh, new experiments. Big part of the reason why uh, it often took so large to advance the art of forging was because um, a lot of what you're doing would be experimenting with new fluxes, uh, new catalysts you put in the uh um uh you put in to assist with various parts of the chemical process some of them were toxic as fuck and not in ways you could immediately register you could legit kill yourself experimenting with new foraging methods and even with the more rigorous scientific approach, that danger isn't eliminated, only partially mitigated. I mean mm-hmm. we only need to look at the example of Mary Curie to see like this stuff is yeah. dangerous. Even when you're doing everything right, sometimes things just boomerang back and nail you in the ass. Yeah, we're a lot better about it nowadays, but, um, well, this comes back to uh, science's community, not individual genius or individual viewpoint on the world. The sheer amount of work and regulation we put into making scientific experiments safe these days is fucking nuts (laughs) trust me if you're a layperson you have no idea how much we go through to make this stuff safe (laughs) yeah and i mean the same thing goes for psychology as well Mm -hmm. and especially psychiatry like Mm -hmm. the sheer number of regulatory board approvals and like like just paperwork involved in even the smallest of studies like it's important this is the reason why it's important but it's also mind-boggling if you've never had to do it yourself yeah um 
though actually, uh, going back to the Iron Forge thing, do you mind if I take a complete random tangent and just ramble on about something about uh, Iron? Um, I did want. I oh, did yeah, want sure, to get sure. go, one go. small point. Yeah, go. So the thing that was interesting to me is that the, um, like, going back to this example, the, <laughs> the, the blacksmith from that time probably would have been better suited to explore magic on a case by case basis than Evie as an individual is. Mm-hmm. Because that person would be more likely to be aware, even if they didn't have like the the support of the community involved, that person would be like because of their approach to gathering new knowledge at a time when it like gathering new knowledge was seen as something fundamentally dangerous and individual mm-hmm. would probably last longer. That's not me saying mm-hmm. that that is the approach to take. It's just an interesting observation that like when Evie mentions um, later mm-hmm. on that like um, reality has a, a capacity to like bounce back and yeah. for people to accept the thing that is easy to understand rather than the thing that actually happened. Mm-hmm. It makes me wonder if that capacity was like less prevalent at points where people were more likely to accept that something strange and supernatural happening was exactly what happened. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it really is interesting to think how uh, the assumption of certain amounts of foundational knowledge could actually be a problem when it comes to approaching um, uh, uh, magic in this scenario, because you have to cast away the idea that you can have those foundational assumptions. <laughs> cast. Anyways. Oh, shush. Um, anyways, the interesting comment I wanted to have about these old forging techniques is... If you're on the internet, you've almost certainly read an article talking about how we don't know how Greek fire was made, or which was a um, basically a form of napalm the Greeks had. Or you'll read stuff about we don't know how Damascus steel was made, right? Or we can't make Damascus steel like they made it anymore, right? First off, all that is bullshit. <laughs> it's all bullshit. Um, uh. <laughs> We know how to make that stuff better than the ancients ever did. <laughs> Trust me, when it comes to metal alloys, we make shit that straight up they would think was magic. Um, but The only thing I could really point to as being like something that is potentially still like slightly unknown mm-hmm. by science is that, I forget the name, but that battery that's lasted forever. What battery that's lasted forever? There, there was some battery made in like the 1800s or something by like an early um, scientist on the subject. And the light that is attached to the battery is still going. The Oxford... Bullshit! Oh my god, you were, this is an example of what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, well then, in, then this is your chance. Educate me. Oh my god, the world, let's see, world's most durable battery. Motherfucker, the Oxford battery? I'm not sure. I've yeah, read this yeah. years ago now. Okay, so long story short. Um, if you ever hear about the long-lasting light bulbs or long-lasting batteries. How did they last that long? The answer is because they're outputting incredibly low powers. And because we don't have reason to make batteries or light bulbs which are that long-lasting, because we are putting them through higher stresses. Um, It's like when people say, oh, look, the Roman roads have lasted to this day. Well, first of all, some of them, not most of them, right? Mm-hmm. Second of all, Roman roads were meant for foot traffic and maybe some carts moving at ordinary speeds very infrequently. Modern roads have to deal with one or two ton cars right, like whistling down on them at 60 miles an hour with a ton of them every second. And also typically much more extreme weather conditions. Yeah, 
Ye yes. <laughs> you Whenever anybody talks about, oh, we don't know how this oh, like ancient thing lasted this long, the answer is, yes, we do. The reason we don't build like that anymore is because we have other design constraints. <laughs> um, and also there's an element of selection bias. Things which last this long are typically outliers. If you really want to compare a modern example to, uh, to it, you compare the most durable things we build nowadays, which are typically a sight more durable than anything the ancients could make. <laughs> oh, for sure. I, in that specific case, the only, like, I figured it was some combination of, like, mm -hmm. there was no reason to make this going forward, but also more specifically that, like, in order to understand why this specific case was an outlier, it would require disassembly of the unit, and that would kind of be like, you know, yeah, historical yeah. preservation. Stuff. Yeah, there's an element of that too. Um, anyways, the thing I was going to talk about with Damascus steel, uh, specifically, you'll off very often see people saying, "Oh, we don't know how to make steel like the ancients did, like Damascus steel, right? That secret's lost forever." No, no, no. A, we can make Damascus steel nowadays. We can make it better than they ever did back in the day. We can make it so much better than they did back in the day. What we are lacking is inherited technical skill. Um, because you'll see stuff like um, the methods of creating uh, these metals would often involve processes which involved human eyes on the process. Like you would put all of this metal into an open pit, right? And you would melt it open to the air, right? As part of the process. And somebody would and it would get stirred at semi-regular intervals, and you would have an expert saying when to stir and for how long and for how to keep the fire based on color involved in the materials. But the thing is, the specifics of these processes were not typically written down at all, and when they were, they typically weren't written down in enough detail that you could perfectly reproduce it from nothing but written materials, because this was a skilled process, the kind which somebody had to be apprenticed from from a fairly young age for 10, 20 years. Like, we're talking stuff that's equivalent to modern day PhD work as a pure Not, technical I mean, skill. Like, <laughs> and, just just extrapolating from that, mm -hmm. like, the, I would mm -hmm. imagine that these pieces, like, mm -hmm. writing down that information implies a certain amount of mass production efficacy that just is not the that goal too, yeah. of what they were doing at that time. Like yeah. Every piece that you would make of this kind would be almost more like an artisanal handcrafted order, something mm -hmm. expensive and custom made. Yeah. There would be no one size fits all. This is how you do this. Well, there would be a specific, there would be a specific rigorously followed process for let's say getting the metal billet. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but the thing is, is that, the technical skill involved in every step of the process, whether it was stoking the fire, watching the color of the metal, knowing exactly what quantities of flux to put in, how to test the purity of the flux you were using, all that stuff, that knowledge isn't preserved. Which isn't to say we can't do it nowadays. We totally can. But we do it nowadays with thermometers and chemical sensors and spectrometers and all that kind of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. The knowledge we lost is how to do that stuff by eye. That's what we don't know nowadays. So, it's not how did they do it, it's how did they do it. Yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. Um, and I think this is a very important distinction to make, which is 
almost inevitably when you hear about, oh yeah, Damascus Steel, they made it back in the day. We don't know how they made it. We totally do. We absolutely do. What we don't have is individuals with the inherited skill to to replicate it the way they did it. And again, this isn't even necessarily because we wouldn't know how to go about it. We typically do, but again, this is a lifetime of skill. Ain't nobody got that time. <laughs> You're not going to recreate that from scratch, which touches on this magic here, which is there's not much inherited skill here. This knowledge is not adapted generation to generation. And just knowing the gist of how something is done does not mean you have the technical skill to do it without modern analytical techniques. <laughs> Yeah, and get continuing on that vein, um, Heather herself sort of lampshade this this when she asked, like, why isn't this stuff? Why why don't more people know about this? Isn't there some kind of like ministry for mages? Evelyn half smiled, a minimalist laugh that would make life easier. Mm -hmm. So for one, the continuous lampshading is funny, mm -hmm. um, but especially since this is a UK setting, so they but definitely both would have been more familiar with Harry Potter even than most people were likely to be, but. <laughs> The more the more specific thing is that not only is Evie like a massive shut-in, um, which this also shows, but this is what the audience is going to be wondering on some level. Like, surely there must be some explanation for why this isn't common knowledge, or at mm. least why this isn't even an option for most people to consider, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's good writing because it's answering these questions. Why is it up to them? Why yeah. can't they go to anyone for help? Yeah, Heather straight up says, uh, then someone must have tried to apply modern science, done systematic experiments, come up with first principles. This isn't the Dark Ages, it's the 21st century. Mm -hmm. But, but, and I love how Evelyn is, like, talks about this yep. later, good science isn't a mindset. It's an institution. Good science isn't just, no one, no one is good enough to do science on our own. Humans aren't good enough to do science on our own. We're not good enough to keep our biases out like that. Which is why science has to be an institution. It has to be peer review. It has to be people to call you out on your shit. It has to be people with conflicting interests doing competing studies. That's necessary. Not just yeah. that. It has to be like the, like, it's not always a competitive thing either. It could be something as simple as like, you got legitimate data and then someone comes comes along and says, mm -hmm. hey, I applied the findings of your study into this other place where it should make sense and it doesn't. Yeah. Here's the data that I got. Oh, well, when I say competing interests, I don't always necessarily mean like you are directly at odds with one another. I just mean the next group who, like th that second group who double checks yeah. your findings, they don't have the same interest you do. They've got no interest in tooting your horn. If they can write a paper tearing you down, they'll do it just as readily as a paper building you up. <laughs> mm -hmm. Ain't no skin off their back either way. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, Ed, do you want to talk about this part where Evelyn talks about like, uh, where she's like, imagine a field of study with too much progress. Do you want to read that part or? Sure. I mean, I can too. I, I love it. No, I can too. I can. <laughs> imagine a field of study in which too much progress too fast results in one's madness or death in which any attempt to contact one's peers risks them murdering you to steal what secrets and power you've amassed, in which the best way to experiment is to commit unimaginable atrocities, in which for hundreds of years, any public attention would have you burned at the stake, and in modern times will see you locked in a mental asylum. There is no pipeline of talent, no safe harbor, 
no peer review, no civil applications. Yeah, that's the thing. I, and I, I love so much how that Catalepsis recognizes this, that where Catalepsis goes with this story isn't, oh, if you touch the outside magic, it warps your mind and you can't like, uh, you can't properly like communicate with others or think right. Because it could, it could, it would be so easy for Catalepsis to go that route and just have Heather's contact with the eye maker an exception to that. But it's not. Catalepsis goes with science is an institution. It is community. And that is lacking. <laughs> As you yourself say so often, people behave according to the incentives that they're given. Mm -hmm. It isn't that people can't study this rigorously or scientifically. Mm -hmm. It's that they haven't had a reason to. Mm-hmm. Because Evelyn says something about this, too. She says, I got this drummed into me as a child, except I had it less as a warning, but as a justification. Like, yeah, I, I don't want to break this all down to input outputs, like mechanically without any cultural discussion. Mm -hmm. There is a culture of this in Evelyn's magical community. The culture evolved for a reason, but it now reinforces itself. There is a belief that there is no civilian applications for magic, so you shouldn't even look for them. There's no safe harbor, there's no peer review, so you shouldn't reach out for one. Um, too much progress, too fast results in your madness, well, that one's just pretty basic, right? But there's also a belief, too much progress, too fast results in your madness or death, so there's no reason to try to establish safety review standards. And if someone else is reaching out to you, they're to be distrusted at best and taken advantage of at worst. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it, this becomes, it's a set of incentives and a cultural mindset, which, again, there's no, there's no amount of genius which works around this. There's no amount of personal brilliance which can make you a good scientist in the absence of a proper community around it. And I love how Catalypsis talks about it. <laughs> yeah. And I, speaking of that quote from Evie, I love the, <laughs> um, the slight difference that changing context makes mm -hmm. that like, we see this, like that speech as a warning, like this is why so many have died and why we have to be careful. But for Evie, it was always, this is why so many have died and why we have to do this to you instead, because it's safer. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, do you think we have time for a little bit of game theory tangent? <laughs> sure. I did want to get on the um, the extended castle metaphor bit in the end, but otherwise, oh, sure. I'm basically through the chapter. Well, let's talk about that. We'll see at the end if we have time for the game theory thing. If not, I might talk about okay. it some other time. So, I I can't just read this entire thing, even though I really really want to. Mm -hmm. Um, but basically. Heather creates this metaphor over the, like, this is one of those snapshots in which we can clearly see this is from some nebulous future point, mm -hmm. but she, she creates this metaphor where there's this castle where inside the laws make sense. People act rationally, if not always kindly. The rooms mm -hmm. have 90 degree angles. You go into the living room and you expect to see the dining table. Things make sense. You can make predictions and those predictions will be mostly accurate so long as they're formed of the data that you have gathered correctly. Mm -hmm. Then you find, and like, and the, the walls keep everything else out. Then you find a secret passage in some forgotten corner. And when you go through it, the door slams shut behind you. 
and then you you crawl up through the parpets up onto the castle walls and what you look out and what you see ruins you because it is a a direct contradiction to everything that you have learned where mm-hmm. things twist themselves into impossible shapes doing impossible feats but just through through the nature of breathing or not and mm-hmm. that, that that you see that this place you've inhabited is just a tiny stone on the surface of everything mm-hmm. else. And then you find your way back into the castle and you realize the terrible truth that not only are there other, not only are you not alone in seeing this, but that other people have the ability to take things from the outside and bring them back with them for mm-hmm. just a brief period of time to make the castle bend. Mm-hmm. And that Heather adds at the end that, and then last and most terrible at all, of all, you realize that you are unique, that you alone can bring things back from outside merely by thinking them, <laughs> which, yikes. Yeah. Um, but what I really wanted to get at was this bit. Let's say you manage to get back down inside the castle. Maybe you try to forget what you saw. Maybe you pretend to be normal. But then you discover you're not the only one. Others have been on the battlements. Some have found cracks in the walls, been outside, brought mm-hmm. things back. So... What really gets to me is that Heather describes this place of horror whose mere sight will ruin you that most people find always by that most people almost always find by accident and alone. And yet the commonality between people who see it is that they bring a part of that horror back with them voluntarily, that they try Mm. to impose it in the space of the castle, a place whose very nature rejects this part, this aspect of reality being in it with them. Mm-hmm. It's almost like, it's like the smell of gasoline. You know, it's harming you. You know that you risk yourself with every breath that you take. And yet there's a part of you that whispers, you know, exactly the word to describe it. You just took another sniff. Hmm. And what this, what this really gets at me is there's this um, post that kind of inspired part of this podcast um, from, I believe it's Brambleson Tumblr. I'll put the link in somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but that just really gets at this. People, especially games, get Eldritch Madness wrong a lot. And it's really such a shame. An ant doesn't start babbling when they see a circuit board. They find it strange. To them, it is a landscape of strange angles and humming monoliths. They may be scared, but that is not madness. Madness comes when the ant for a moment, can see as a human does. It understands those markings are words, symbols with meaning, like a pheromone but infinitely more complex. It can travel unimaginable distances to lands unlike anything it has seen before. It knows of mirth, embarrassment, love, concepts unimaginable before this moment, and then it's an ant again. Echoes of things it cannot comprehend swirl around its mind. It cannot make use of this knowledge, but it still remembers. How is it supposed to return to its life? The more the ant saw, the harder it is for it to forget. It needs to see again, to understand again. It will do anything to show others, to show itself. Nothing else in this tiny world matters. This is madness. And that that's exactly what this castle metaphor is showing. It's mm-hmm. not about the things that you see alone that ruins you. It's the fact that even when you go back inside the castle walls, they come with you. Yeah, and also no one else gets it, so you got to show them. Yeah. Because in some way, if other people won't or can't acknowledge what you've been through, then was it real at all? Yeah. And actually, 
So, are you familiar with the Lovecraft story, The Outsider? I don't believe so. So, okay. Um, for those of you who don't know, and you know a lot of people here might not have read Lovecraft stuff, uh, The Outsider is one of his most uh, like published stories. Um, also one I can honestly recommend reading. There is, as far as I remember, it's not drowning in bigotry. For once, for one of his stories. Holy shit. <laughs> um, might be a lot of that. large numbers that had to happen eventually. Yeah. Might be one of why it's his most republished works, actually. <laughs> um, but uh, The Outsider actually has a lot in common with this metaphor, to the point where I wonder if it might have directly inspired it. Um, but uh, so the thing is, well, let me just describe The uh, Outsider real quick and see how much it resonates. Because The Outsider starts with a narrator explaining that He's in this dark, decaying castle amid an endless forest of high trees that block out the light from the sun. Um, and his only knowledge of the outside world is from these antique books that line the walls of the castle. But he's never seen another human being or natural light or anything. But he desperately wants to be free, right? Till eventually he climbs a ruined staircase in the castle tower. And he goes up and up and up and up and up seemingly forever till he finds a trap door in the ceiling and he comes out and he sees ground level of somewhere new and he sees the moon and it's beautiful to him and then he finds people at a party and longing for human contact he goes to talk to them and upon entering they run screaming from him um and he's trying to understand what went wrong and trying to understand why they freaked out and he sees this horrifying creature and it, it terrifies him. And then he realizes he's seeing himself in a mirror and he's not human. Oh, he's never been human. Um, and there's just, there's so much similar imagery. The idea of the castle is all you have ever known and going up and up and up to find the other world. But the outsider ends that with the castle wasn't our reality. It was this thing's reality. Mm-hmm. And our world was the outside to it. Yeah. And it really makes me wonder where Heather might be going with that metaphor. Because what the fuck is... If Heather is the outsider in this metaphor, what the fuck does that imply? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we haven't even really gotten into this discussion yet of like, for all that the I has done to Heather, what does that imply about what it wants? Uh, we're, we're not gonna get there for a while. Yeah, no. I, I mean, yeah. like that is a, that is a subject that we are going to get into. Mm-hmm. But I will say that, like, that is pro- what Heather is is probably wrapped up somewhere in there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I think it really is interesting to think that more than I think anything else we see in all of Catalepsis, this metaphor Heather has about the castle is a direct parallel to a Lovecraft story. Like, same imagery, same metaphor, very similar description. Mm-hmm. Except that part at the end where the narrator is human or not. <laughs> yeah. Which brings up the question, is Heather actually a human narrator? <laughs> and it, it's interesting because even at the end, she qualifies that, like, she isn't... You, you go back in and you pretend to be normal, but mm-hmm. she is unique in that she's, she's the only one who can bring this stuff back just by thinking about it, even compared to her peers 
who have gone beyond the parpets and see what sees what lies beyond, she still doesn't fit. Yeah. Also, I'm going to bring this up over and over and over again. Who says Heather's unique? Who says the eye only did this with her and Maisie? Is there any reason to think that? Because they, because Evelyn and Rain, they stumbled on Heather. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, however much you thought the eye had to do with that retrospectively. Yeah, it's always possible it had, uh, had some influence in that, but um, heck, let's say it did. Maybe there's other mages in other places where uh, it pushed other people towards that. There's a big assumption of uniqueness on Heather's part, which the narrative is making, and I am not convinced at this point. <laughs> oh, for sure. I mean, that's definitely a um, an open question. Mm-hmm. Even parts that Heather assumes to be unique for a long time, like the fact that she only sees these things, she's the only one who can slip, are proven to be categorically false. Mm. Well, we're not, we're not going to get there yet. You're the one who's mm. getting ahead of us. I'm not spoiling anything. <laughs> Anyways. Um, but yeah. Um, had anything else to talk about in the last chapter? No, I think that's the, um, that's the bulk of it, yeah. No, just like, it, it's a lot of world building, but mm-hmm. very needed and very well done. Oh, yeah. there was the bit about good writing at the end. Yeah, I, I, mind if I comment on that real quick? Go for it. There's more description of the university here, which is just gorgeous and beautiful. Um, with uh, the Sheriffer University Library is this hybrid monster, a chimera of brutalist block tower welded to an aborted neoclassical facade, wrapped around a spun glass kernel of abused Gothic revival, all built on ancient stone foundations, which is just... Mm. Hungary doesn't do this kind of description all that often, but god damn, when she does it, it sticks with you forever. <laughs> See, um, I was going to put this part in my notes, but then I was just like, you know that Thomas is just going to nerd out over this, so just leave it to him. I feel called out. <laughs> <laughs> a- anyways, actually, one interesting comment I had about it was it talks about the history of the uh, uh, of the university. Um, began as a fortified mount- manor house in 1456, pounded into gravel two centuries later by parliamentary parliamentarian canon, gifted to the university and rebuilt, restored by arrogant Victorians restored as in quotes, <laughs> wounded by stray Luftwaffe bombs on their way to Manchester, and at long last shored up with 1960s concrete. And like, I'm an American. Nothing I see has that kind of history to it. At least not that hasn't been very thoroughly buried and not talked about, and where there isn't a very clear rupture in the history. <laughs> um, but um. Yeah, it's just for, it's very interesting perspective, I think, because like being an American, if something's history was talked about, it would always be with a very specific reason, and the history would always be much shorter than this. And it's just, I don't know, I love seeing this loving description from a very alien perspective to me, where things just, where the immediate history around you is just fucking longer. It is. It is always easy to forget as an American or as someone American raised, just how young this country is compared to almost every other. Mm-hmm. Both, both in terms of chrono- chronolo- chronology, but also just in terms of like shared historical experience that would shape someone's narrative like this. Yeah. Well, I, and I'm not just talking about Europe here, to be clear. Yeah. Well, actually, I saw something interesting, which this might be a little bit of a tangent, and it's a goddamn sad one. But um, uh, was talking about how um Yellowstone National Park is like supposedly this example of like 
untouched landscape, right? <laughs> um, mm -hmm. When the reality is, is actually uh, there were people living there long before uh, <laughs> uh, American colonialists moved in. And the landscape they created was very much one they cultivated deliberately. It was never, not for thousands of years, quote unquote, untouched wilderness. And I'd known that for a while, but one thing I learned just recently was when they were first setting up the national parks in these areas, they went through and destroyed all evidence of human habitation in them to make it look more like untouched wilderness. Mm -hmm. America does actually have a very long history of human habitation and structures and buildings, but it was all wiped out in one of the most effective genocides of human history. We don't have yeah, it. Yeah, there's a reason why I said the country America is young, not the place. Yeah, but so it's just, I have a very specific reaction when I see something like this from a UK author talking about this long systemic history going back like ages and ages and ages in a single building and just thinking, Ooh, that's not something we have here. <laughs> mm -hmm. And why? Yeah. Yeah. Um, there was one more tiny bit of, oh, yeah, um, sure. of good writing that I just wanted to mention before we wrap up here. Um, this is one of the opening lines in chapter 2.2. Between her prosthetic leg and her walking stick, Evelyn put me to shame. Our route took us along Bluebell Road, a twisty humpbacked mm -hmm. residential street on the edge of the student quarter, which led up to the university drive. And... Mm -hmm. It's small, but like the description matches Evelyn's character as they're going. Oh, and I just found that like, yeah, huh? And it's just like a little like even in these little bits of description that are like serving to um to further characterize the city in a very unique way that they're going through, it still comes back to the characters. Interesting. Hmm. I like that. Makes me also wonder yeah. a little bit more about uh, the implications of all the university building descriptions we see. I mean, Heather is a lit nerd. <laughs> uh, all right, do we have anything else to talk about? Or I think that's about everything. Um, next chapter, we'll be getting more into all what this um, maths that Heather keeps talking about is all about. <laughs> Which will be very interesting. Um, Heather well, to Gabe to too gay to function for math causes psychic damage confirmed <laughs> hey i'm living proof that not all gays are bad at math you're like the sole exception go go away there's other people in the catalepsis discord have you not seen the brain math channel oh uh, there's a reason why i have that place muted <laughs> uh, some of the people there are better at math than i am that's why I have it muted. <laughs> Some of them are actual math graduates, not just people who brush up against it incidentally doing physics. Okay, everyone. Thank you for listening to the podcast. <laughs> All right. Anyways, uh, credits for the intro and outro music are Celestial Experiments by Tyler River. And the icon art is by Noctilla at noctilla.art. And Thank we'll you. see you next week for 2.3 and 2.4. Mm -hmm. Thank you all for listening. Bye-bye. See you in your dreams. Bye.